Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting live 
tracking who we need and call this liberty. Eight seven nine zero. 
You guys are welcome to call in and give your local cruise thanks, the local Appleseed Project cruise, to uh, give us an after-action on an event. If you want to uh, talk about or promote an upcoming shoot, if you want to give thanks to some of your local crew members who are hard-working volunteers, we, we encourage you to do so. If you want to congratulate somebody who has shot the rifleman standards or accepted an uh, instructor's hat or passed a PC, we encourage you to do uh, all of those, too. We'll, we'll take your calls. And we'll take calls any time during the show, but we'd like to try and get those out at the beginning of the show if possible. Uh, all right, so the number is 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. And I want to remind folks that uh, that are in Texas for this weekend that uh, Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers are going to be meeting at the Alamo for an open carry march. Uh, that'll be uh, October 19th, and uh, it will be at the Alamo. Now, one of the things that we want to remind folks of, this is open carry for rifles. All right, There is no legal open carry for pistols. So don't. no one is being encouraged to break the law. Right? It's illegal to open carry pistols, but it is legal to open carry rifles. So they want folks to and uh, and to uh, exercise their right for open carry. It's a peaceable assembly. Now, uh, Sam, I asked uh, uh, Stuart a little bit earlier. I just I called and left a message for him to call into the show tonight if he gets a chance. So he may be calling it, but he may not. I, I couldn't catch him to talk to him uh, live. <clears throat> but if he wants to call in, then uh, we'll get him on the air and let him talk a little bit about it because uh, this is uh, this is something that is that is going on around the country, and that is folks uh, exercising their right to either open carry pistols in open carry handgun states or to open carry rifles where it's legal. And uh, and I hope that this is working the right way. I mean, I hope that this is, uh, that it is encouraging people uh, to understand their Second Amendment rights rather than rather than to inflame uh, folks who are freaking out about this and uh, trying to get and them trying to get uh, some laws changed so that so that you can't they have to remember that you you still have to use common sense if you're doing something like this you've got to use common sense because uh, in today's uh, world if you are walking down the street somewhere with a rifle, then uh, you may get uh, you may get stopped and asked for identification, and they may ask you what's going on, just because because there have been 
a number of cases of people who have gone off the deep end and done something, all right? So if somebody does stop you and ask you for uh, identification or ask you what you're doing, be polite, be cooperative, and uh, and be a good uh, model for for a lawful open carry. Uh, that's going to be at the Alamo October 19th. That's this coming weekend. Uh, let me see. Uh, uh, if you want more information about this, you can go to the Oath Keepers website. That is oathkeepers.org. Oathkeepers.org. Now, Stuart Rhodes, who's a founder of Oath Keepers, he's been on the show before. And Stuart was one of the uh, early members of the Appleseed Project. He was uh, with us uh, back when we were on one of the, the old early forums. And uh, Stuart is constitutional attorney. He was on staff for uh, Ron Paul for a while. And then he wrote for SWAT magazine. He wrote a column for SWAT magazine. And while he was writing the column, he did a piece on the Appleseed Project. And uh, we used that for, for many years. And I believe we still have some that uh, we that we hand out as part of our promotions uh, packets. So Stuart is a, a friend and member of Appleseed. And we encourage folks uh, to go to the read uh, what they have to say and to make your own decision about uh, about uh, joining them or taking the pledge. Now, the the original idea of uh, Oath Keepers is just to reinforce the idea that uh, that all of our uh, law enforcement and military are all sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution, not an administration, but the Constitution. And uh, nobody nobody is being asked to to take any kind of an oath when they take their oath keepers oath to take any kind of an oath. That they get sideways of their original oath that they take when they're sworn in. This is a this is a, uh, a completely compatible oath that you're swearing, and you're just swearing to defend and support the Constitution of the United States of America. Uh, I wish that more folks decide to defend it. <clears throat> But that's what this is about. Uh, so if you'd like to do that, take a look at the website, OathKeepers.org, and you'll find the information there. Uh, Oathkeepers has been a friend to Appleseed for quite a while. Uh, Stuart always promotes the Appleseed Project. And uh, I want to uh, read you a quick letter. Uh, this is from... Colonel Travis, whenever he defending the Alamo on uh, February 24th, 
addressed to the people of Texas and to all Americans in the world. It starts out, fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy had demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or 4,000 in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his honor and that of his country, victory or death. William Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Colonel Commanding. P.S. The Lord is on our side. When the enemy appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses 80 or 90 bushels and got into the walls 20 or 30 head of bees. Travis. Now, we know that uh, that aid did not arrive in time. And, of course, uh, Travis and the rest of the defenders of the Alamo uh, were defeated and uh, put to death. However, their defense of the Alamo became a battle cry for the rest of the Texas army who went on to defeat Santa Ana and to establish the independent republic of Texas. <clears throat> All right. Uh, the uh, check the switchboard here and uh, and remind you guys that if you'd like to call in and uh, and give an after action or promote something or to tell anyone thanks, you're welcome to do so. Three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero all right before we get started on the after action I want to mention that uh, I was just at the and uh, the other thing I, uh, I'd like you guys to do is is if anyone has any uh, reports on ammunition uh availability and prices and stuff like that. If you'll call in and give that information out, uh, we'd appreciate hearing that too, because I would still like to know how the uh, the ammunition uh, situation is affecting apple seeds. All right, I was just at the dollar store, and uh, I told you guys I try and, I try and maintain a constant... Uh, uh, Cost a constant prep, and one of the ways I do that is I I have a weekly 
uh, amount of money that I'll spend on uh, on purchasing items that I need that, and not just items that I need for the for the end of the world and the zombie apocalypse, but things that I'm going to use anyway, but that uh, that will be necessary if it becomes hard, if it becomes difficult to get supplies. So I want to remind folks to think about not just the bullets and band-aids and food, but to think about things like uh, the incidentals. And by that, I mean things like uh, if you uh, if you wear glasses, if you wear glasses, and uh, I'm finally getting to that point in my life where, in order for me to read uh, read a newspaper or something that without too much difficulty, uh, I need glasses. If I'm going to get a splinter uh, out of my finger or my kid's fingers, I need to put my glasses on. Uh, so whenever you're making your prep, uh, you might want to make sure that you are picking up things through reading glasses. If you have prescription glasses, make sure that you have a pair or two, an extra pair or two uh, that you've purchased and put away safely. I'd buy one of those hard containers for them to protect them and put the glasses away in that so that you have them. Uh, if uh, if something should happen, if there's a succession of services or something like that, uh, you're going to find it hard to get some of these things. Uh, some of the other things are things like soap. Uh, and one of the things I do is I... I have a certain budget that I allow for that. Things like the, uh, like today, I picked up the 10 bars of soap for $3. And it was just a nice, plain ivory soap. And I uh, picked up 10 bars of it for $3. And I, I do that ever so often because soap is a, another thing. You know, if, if there is a cessation of services, one of the things you're going to have to do is make sure that you stay clean. Your hands have to stay clean. You have to you have to maintain personal hygiene in order to maintain your health. So you're going to have to have things like soap. And unless you uh, teach yourself to make soap, which wouldn't be a bad skill to have, then you need to make sure that you have some on hand. And uh, the way to do that is to pick some extra soap up every week or two or once a month uh, when you're in town and you're shopping. It doesn't have to be uh, – maybe you use some kind of special soap right now. It's some um, expensive perfume soap. That's fine. Right, but you don't have to buy that in bulk. Right, you can just buy the just the regular plain cheap soap. And make sure that when you buy it, that you uh, that you store it in a cool, dry place. And I always make sure that I I bag up the things like soap. I'll put them in a uh, Ziploc bag, and I'll put uh, maybe I'll put some of the uh, uh, the moisture absorption packets in there and press out all the air, and then put it in a cool, dry place so that the soap 
doesn't uh, dry out uh, or get uh, too soft uh, with moisture or anything like that. So make sure that you are stocking up on enough soap that you can get through uh, hard times or a cessation of services. And uh, I can also tell you that that soap is probably going to be a valuable uh, commodity for barter. People are want they're going to want to be able to stay clean and uh, and to wash their hands and faces and their bodies and then even their clothes and they're going to want some soap. So buying the bars now at uh, fifteen to thirty cents a piece is a good bet, and you can you, you don't uh, have to. And leave it there forever. You have your stock of soap, and uh, when you need some more soap, you go down and you get uh, three or four bars, and uh, and use those. And you just keep replacing it and keep buying extra so that you are building up your surplus of it, and that you're also using your stock. You know, when I put something in a bag for storage, uh, I'll write on the outside of it what it is in a black sharpie. I'll write on what it is and when I put it in there. I'll do that right on the front so I can see uh, the age of whatever it is that I'm using. And I try and make sure that I'm rotating through my stock. Uh, If I have soap that's uh, uh, like the tin pack that I bought tonight, we'll go into a one-quart Ziploc bag. I'll press all the air out. I'll write today's date on it. And I'll put it of the 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 little shelf where I store it. I'll put it in the very back, and then I'll grab a couple of bars from the front and take those up and use them. That's how I'm rotating through it, and I'm using this stuff. Uh, I'm not just buying a bunch of stuff that I'm never going to use. Uh, I'm buying stuff that I'm using in my regular life. I'm just buying a little bit more of it than normal. I'm trying to make sure I'm buying it when it's on sale. Uh, I'm buying it in bulk and then uh, storing it for use later. Uh, Another thing I've mentioned to you guys quite a few times is Band-Aids. If something, if there is something that causes a cessation of services or causes uh, any kind of uh, disruption system, then there's a good chance that... uh, that folks, even folks that uh, that have good jobs right now, office jobs and stuff like that, that uh, that folks' lives may change, and they may have to do uh, different things, things like manual labor, uh, building things for your house, or uh, putting in gardens, uh, things that. Uh, that you normally might not do, or maybe you might you might normally pay somebody else to do them, but now you're doing them because of whatever situation uh, has evolved. This means that uh, when any time any person is doing manual labor, then there's an opportunity to, for you to uh, receive injuries. And the thing you have to remember is that in a a situation where there is cessation of services, if there's a grid-down situation, there's going to be hard to get 
medical attention a lot of times. You may be on your own in a lot of cases, and you may think that uh, a small cut on your finger or a sliver in your hand or your finger is no big deal. And normally it wouldn't be, right? Uh, normally you would uh, you would just, uh, you know, clean it up real good, put a Band-Aid on it, and uh, if something were to happen, get infected or something like that, you'd go to the doctor. You'd take a look at it, he'd fix it, he'd give you antibiotics if needed, and you'd go on your way. But that may not... Uh, you may not be able to do that. You may be required to perform all the services yourself. That means that even a small nick or cut on your finger, and uh, it could be, it could be the end of the road for you. Just recently, they they had a pretty decent show, I think, on one of the television shows, either National Geographic or uh, Discovery, something like that about a uh, uh a situation and I don't remember what the what the cause of it was but you know it caused it to uh it caused everything to change and uh and it ended up finally with uh I think a year or two after whatever the event was and these folks had had made their long hard journey from I think from downtown Los Angeles or Hollywood up uh, out into uh, into the rural or mountain areas of California, and they were finally like safe, uh, living at a at a nice serene compound. And the father who was in the group had uh, nicked his finger, I think, on a shovel while he was digging, and uh, that got infected. And it led to uh, uh, septus, and it killed him. And, yeah, it's just a television show. But I guarantee you this happens every single day somewhere around the world. Every single day you've got folks that this is how their journey ends. They cut their finger, they cut their toe, they got a little nick or a splinter, it gets infected, the infection spreads into septus, and that shuts their body down and they die, all right? The little tiny sliver can be the end of you. You've got to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. And the first step in that is making sure that you are paying attention to wound care. I mean, it's cleaning out to even the small uh, cuts and scrapes really good with soap, with clean water and soap. All right, there's that bar of soap that you bought in bulk. And then making sure that the wound is covered with uh, a Band-Aid, something to keep the wound uh, from getting contaminants uh, forced into it as you go about your your daily manual labors. And uh, that means that you need to have some way to cover it, and that's a Band-Aid. And... That is also on my uh, weekly and monthly purchase list. And I, you know, I do a lot of this bulk shopping at the dollar store because I can buy a, a package of bandages. I'm looking at the ones I bought today. This is a uh, 100 sterile assorted bandages. And I always buy the fabric bandages because they're a lot more durable and 
and they they tend to stay on better without tearing, uh, and they seem, even if they're old, not to be as fragile as the plastic or paper ones. <clears throat> uh, and I paid a uh, dollar and a half for 100 of them. And uh, I do that uh, every every couple of uh, weeks. I'll buy uh, another 100 or 200 or more of the bandages. I do what I just told you. I take the bandages. I put them in uh, the these. I'll put into sandwich bags. I'll uh, press all the air out. I'll label uh, when I got them, and they'll go down into a plastic uh, tub. And uh, I don't know how many. I've probably got four or five dozen of the 100 and 200 packs of bandages. <clears throat> because, as I said, it's very important that that you don't let even the smallest little nicks and cuts go unattended. Because there's nobody to look, there's nobody to take care of them but you. So make sure that you put uh, bandages on your incidentals. Uh, things, uh, uh, other things, uh, medically like uh, aspirin. Now you can buy just the cheap, plain, uncoated aspirin. You can buy a bottle of uh, 250 for a buck, buck and a half. And aspirin is a uh, is another thing that if you need it. Uh, if you need aspirin, well, that's what I was talking about for aches, pains, and headaches. Uh, mainly when I'm talking about aspirin and survival situation, I'm talking about uh, uh, for the treatment of fever. You know, if you have a high fever, uh, a high fever can kill or permanently maim you. If you let your fever go up uh, above the 106, 107, mark and let it hang out there for a while, then uh, if you survive it, you'll end up like uh, one of the buddies that I have, and you'll walk real slow, and you'll talk real slow, and you'll live a really nice, slow life. The way to make sure that uh, that you get around that, if you can, is to make sure that you have some aspirin available. Aspirin uh, will help thin your blood and with your blood thinner, the circulation will be greater. And with the with the inner blood circulating at a greater rate, it's able to cool down a lot better. And you may have to do some other things, like uh, artificially cool uh, the person who has a fever with uh, with either uh, damp cloths or or soaking in water if need be uh, to get their temperature down. But it's going to start off with aspirin. All right. And and things like aspirin are going to be very scarce. So now the time to, to pick up the aspirin is now. And once again, uh, I think aspirin would, would be a pretty decent barter item because not everybody's going to have it. But at some point, everybody's going to need it. They're going to need to take aspirin to to fight a fever, and you can you can guarantee that... And if something happens that causes a, uh, a a widespread cessation of services, then then there are going to be a lot of health issues. 
there's going to be a lot more uh, colds and flus and bugs and viruses and everything else. There's going to be a lot more opportunities for you to get fevers. Uh, the opportunities for you to drink uh, uh, untreated water and uh, and uh, plenty of other things. So make sure uh, that you uh, that on your prep shopping that you're looking at things like this uh, and you're picking up aspirin, band-aids, you have eyewear. Uh, what I do is, uh, is I'll, and I go through the glasses pretty quick because I'm really rough on them. I drop them, I step on them, I run over them with my car or my truck. Uh, I'll leave them out in the field and uh, bail them up in hay bales, you name it, and I will do it. So usually what I do is I, I'll make some bulk purchases of, uh, of reading glasses. When I'm at uh, some of the real dollar stores, I'll buy one or two dozen of the uh, the highest magnification that they have for a dollar a piece, and I'll bundle those up, and, and then I'll use those if I'm if I'm you know if I'm doing something that looks like it's going to get the glasses broken or something. And then I just make sure that uh, that I have plenty uh, in stock. Because if you're if you've got to have to read, then you got to make sure that you keep some. All right. So I know I've already said this three or four times, but the reason I keep saying it is because it's important. Okay. Uh, make sure that you're that you're thinking about incidentals. Uh, and while I'm talking about incidentals, uh, this isn't an incidental. But I want to remind you guys about. Uh, about chlorine for disinfecting water. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not talking about the liquid chlorine. Remember, we talked about that a while back. And you can use that. As a matter of fact, I, I do keep uh, usually about five gallons on hand. And But that's not just for uh, disinfecting water and stuff like that. I mean, I use a lot of chlorine for other things, for uh, like for cleaning up the uh, uh, the meat processing facilities that I have here on the property uh, and, uh, you know, washing clothes and uh, preparing a house for painting, stuff like that. So I use a lot of the liquid, and if need be, you can, you can use that for disinfecting water for drinking. But the liquid, uh, depending on, on how it's stored, is going to lose its potency fairly quickly. <clears throat> And uh, it is uh, it's much much more effective for you to go and buy the chlorine in bulk. And you can do this by going to a pool supply store and buying the tablets or the uh, the powdered chlorine that they have there. And that way you can mix up uh, the precise uh, solution of chlorine that you need, and the powder will keep uh, very well, stored in a cool dry place, will keep very well for a, a fairly long period of time, you know, several years. So that is another thing that uh, you want to put on your list to pick up. Get that picked up, uh, you know, pretty soon and get that 
uh, packaged up and stored away. When we talk about survival, we're always talking about the five tenets of survival. Water, food, security, energy, and shelter. And it's not always it's not always in that order. It can be in any order, but normally water is one of the things that you're going to need first because you need water every day, all right? You're going to need to drink some water every day. So make sure that you have the things you need to prepare your water, that you have them stocked now. And that includes making sure that you have the the uh, dry chlorine, the chlorine tablets, okay? All right. Uh, yeah, I see that Sam Sam is being funny, and he wrote uh, that I know about manual labor and injury. And yes, I do. Matter of fact, I've got uh, three band-aids on my fingers right now. And I'll tell you that uh, after many years of doing this, you know, I've learned that uh, you know it's just easy to injure your hands and fingers, and the amount of pain that you're going to get from that, the amount of lingering pain stuff, is going to be determined by by uh, how you deal with the injury uh, when it happens, how soon you take care of it, and how much attention you pay to it. It's going to determine how severe the injury gets and how painful it is, and for how long. Uh, so I carry, uh, like in my vehicle, I carry the box of Band-Aids, and inside the Band-Aids is a tube of uh, the antibiotic ointment. And what I do is a uh, cleaner or whatever it is, I try and clean off of it as best I can, and then I'll put the antibiotic ointment on there. Now, antibiotic ointment is for uh, is to help you fight infection. Now, the, you don't have infection the minute you get something. But it can still help because what you can do is, is you can use the ointment as a, like a filler. If you've got a cut, then you pack the filler full of that ointment and it keeps uh, anything else from getting into it and then you apply the Band-Aid. All right? Uh, you could do the same thing with Vaseline. Uh, it would probably work just as well on the initial injury. But I just, uh, I, it's easier for me to carry the antibiotic ointment tube, so that's what I do. All right? So I don't know if I, how long I can beat this dead horse, but I think it's very important for you to understand that just that little nick on your finger can end up killing you. All right? So you've got to be very careful. You, I'm not trying to make you paranoid, but I'm trying to make you understand that when you get an injury, you've got to take care of it right then and there. Take care of it and move on. Drive on. <clears throat> All right. Uh, the old guide is posting in chat that uh, there's no ammo in Maine, so they make their own. Now, uh, OG, are you saying that? Are you saying that it's hard to find uh, any ammunition? Is there uh, any? 22 long rifle available? Are there other calibers of ammunition that's available? Or is there nothing available? And remember, the rest of you guys, uh, make sure that you're, if you have any information on this in your area, be sure and call it in uh, or post it on the, uh, uh, in the chat so that, and I'll read it out for you. Uh, 
because I would like to find out uh, how the ammunition system is, uh, the availability is across uh, the country right now. We're hoping that uh, that at some point, really soon, the manufacturing process, the supply, is going to catch up and exceed the demand so that prices can begin to uh, – so that first you have availability so that you can purchase it, even if it's at a high price. But then hopefully that the supply is going to catch up and meet and then exceed the demand so that the prices can, you know, can go back down to somewhat near what they were before the ammunition craze started. I have no illusions that that the ammunition prices are going to be higher than normal because that is the way it works uh, with whatever it is. If it's ammunition or gasoline or potatoes or whatever it is, that uh, once the prices have gone up high, that even when they could go back to a normal price, they usually don't because they've gotten folks used to paying the higher prices. But if the uh, supply can reach a point where it is uh, where it exceeds demand, then folks will have to uh, lower the prices uh, in order to make sales. Right? They'll have to make they'll have to lower the prices and hopefully begin selling it in bulk again at lower prices in order to continue to make the sales that they want to make that they need to make. Uh, OG says that in Maine there are plenty of oddball calibers. I imagine he's talking about things like uh, uh, 270, 221, uh, 243, things like that. But he says there is no 22 long rifle, no 38, no 357, no 223, 7.62, or 30-06 available. Hmm. Uh, we're starting to see uh, some of the calibers returning to the shelves here in Texas. Uh, and uh, and a lot of it is it's still fairly high in prices, but you're starting to see some. I believe a lot, most of the places I believe are still uh, limiting the purchase. Uh, you know, like say one box or two boxes or something like that. But but we're starting to see it uh, coming back on the shelves. Uh, if uh, anybody else has any information about av availability, post in the chat or give us a call, 347-308-8790, so that uh, we can try and get a better picture of, of how it's going. And like I said, I'm, I'm hoping that... Uh, I'm hoping that the supply is going to meet and exceed the demand because uh, as for the Appleseed Project, in order to get folks to come and shoot, they need to have 22 long rifle at the very least to get on the line and shoot. The, the price 
of the 22 long rifle has fluctuated pretty pretty wildly over the last year, uh, and I've seen it go all the way from uh, I believe it was a little over a dollar a round for 22 long rifle at the height of the craziness. And I believe it's still uh, a fairly expensive now because I think somebody said they were paying uh, $6 for a box of 50, uh, which means that a box of, if you if you get 500 rounds, that's uh, 60 bucks. Uh, Spit Thicker says, the AR stuff, uh, he's, he's able to find that coming back onto the shelves. Still hard to find 22 long rifle, and then uh, Spitzdickler is up in the DFW area. Uh, you're saying 855 at a local Walmart. Eight, bulk 855. What do you, is that the, uh, I'm, not sure what, I'm not sure what that is. Forty-five cents around. Oh, you're talking about the two-two-three, right? Uh, Freedom V says they're seeing availability of most everything except twenty-two long rifle. Well, that is a uh, that is a a pretty common. Reply that I'm getting is it 22 long rifle, which is probably one of the most uh, common rounds. Almost everyone has a 22 rifle. If they don't have anything else, they've got a 22 uh, long rifle or pistol that uses long rifle, and that is still very hard to find. And okay, Kirk's uh, Kirk's saying the XM855. That's the uh, 556 round. He said it's running five, uh, 45 cents a round now. And that's, that's still expensive. So, like I said, we're hoping that the supply is going to keep keep pushing forward in, until it meets the demand and then exceeds it. All right. Uh, again, but weekend before... Uh, we had an event at the uh, Camp Bullis Fort Sam Joint Command there in San Antonio. Uh, we went there to instruct an Air Force EOD unit, an uh, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit. These were all the bomb techs, uh, and to put on the apple seed for them. And it, it went very well. Uh, we were invited there by a Master Sergeant Mott, who had attended an apple seed at Fredericksburg under Tommy Newton, Dragon, and uh, he was really impressed with the program. And he ended up shooting to rifleman standards and got his rifleman's patch and then uh, invited us to come to the base and uh, and put on an event there. And we did. We got uh, – he got the uh, – the local command to cut loose. Uh, I believe they ended up with with uh, fifteen, fourteen or fifteen thousand rounds that they had 
allocated for the event, which seems like a lot. But, you know, if you think about it, uh, if you have 30 folks on the line, then you're shooting uh, 1,000 rounds. If you were to get a uh, uh, a whole company, a whole rifle company uh, on the line, uh, you'd be shooting over 100,000 rounds, which is a lot of ammunition for training. But uh, they had uh, they got uh, the uh, 14 to 15 thousand rounds uh, okayed. Uh, we were supposed to have, I believe, 16 shooters, but uh, several had to uh, had to leave for a different mission, and then uh, I think one of the others ended up having to. Uh, get ready for a rapid deployment. And these guys, most of the guys that we were working with were scheduled for deployment, and and a good many of them had already made several deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, if you don't know what the EOD units are, they are the folks that handle the uh, any type of explosives, any type of ordnance all the way from uh, uh, from rounds that uh, that our forces may have that either could be questionable uh, to folks that uh, um, that find ammunition uh, any ammunition that is captured that needs to be disposed of uh, the uh, improvised explosive devices, the IEDs that are used against our forces. These are the guys that go out and uh, find the IEDs and uh, mines and stuff like that, and then uh, then find some way to deal with them. And normally, uh, the guys said that they they normally try to blow the things in place because that's the safest thing to do. Sometimes they have to be removed or uh, in some form or fashion be messed with, but normally they try and just blow them in place. And uh, the folks that we talked to said that, uh, that they had at different times during their deployments had received some uh, some kind of sketchy uh, security elements that were detailed to them, and because of this, they uh, they all decided that they wanted to make sure that they were able to uh, to provide for their own defense, and they wanted to make sure that they were able to uh, develop a standard of accuracy with their individual weapons that would allow them to do that. So that's what we were there to help them to do. So we started everybody out on the line at 25 meters, just like usual. And the only real difference between uh, what we would normally do on the line somewhere and the military base is that the base had a lot of uh, pretty strict rules about uh, uh, weather conditions and stuff like that. And we had uh, rain and fog on both days. And before we could get started with a shoot, the 
we had to have, I believe it was 2,100 feet of visibility. And that included uh, uh, vertical visibility because there was uh, there were several uh, flight facilities that uh, had a flight cross the firing line. So we had to be able to see the 2,100 feet, and then we also had to uh, call ceasefires anytime there were air aircraft that were approaching the range. Then we also had uh, rain off and on during the shoot, and the range had a policy of uh, with any visible lightning strike or with any audible uh, thunder that the range had to be closed down immediately. Uh, they wanted everybody to uh, to clear off the line, get into their vehicles, and wait for 30 minutes. There had to be a 30-minute span from the last lightning strike or the last uh, audible thunderclap before you get back on the line. So that, uh, you know, that caused some stops and starts, but we dealt with that by telling the story and, uh, and talking about uh, going through the, the six steps or the uh, natural point of aim and stuff like that. We all crammed into uh, one big SUV and uh, and try to do our best to uh, to carry on the instruction during it. And the by the end of the day on well on Sunday we set up the we had the guys uh, shooting down to uh, like four to eight minutes and we set up the actual distance range. And we took the guys and we we got them data for 100, 200, 300, 400 meters, and we shot an actual distance AQT. And then uh, uh, they had some steel, and they shot at the steel. And then they also had uh, uh, full auto uh, uh, weapons that they ran, and they and a lot of the folks, uh, everybody got to fire the full autos. And uh, and then by the end of the day, we also had to shut down fairly early each day. I had to shut down by uh, 3 o'clock on the military ranges because the ranges were in an Environmental Protective Agency uh, recharge zone for the aquifer there. That also meant that we had to use... Uh, the only thing we were allowed to use was frangible uh, non-lead ammunition, which has a you know a bit of a different uh, flight characteristic than the regular uh, than the A55 or the uh, uh, the 109 or any of the other stuff that we're normally used to green tips and stuff like that. The frangible has a, a a different body shape, and it is made of different, uh, uh, the projectile is made out of different metal than lead. <clears throat> Nonetheless, we got them the data for it, and then, uh, like I said, we had to shut down early because the area that was uh, just past the impact zone was scheduled every day. There were folks from the EPA, uh, they were scheduled to go and work 
in uh, in the area that was past the impact area. So we had to cut it down sharply at three o'clock every day for those folks to be able to get their their work done. So that made it a bit different, the time constraints and stuff like that. Nonetheless, the guys were really happy uh, with the instruction. We plan on going back and uh, doing another event there, and uh, and we certainly want to wish the guys well, keep them in our prayers for their deployments because, uh, you know, back in the old days, uh, no, not too old, because things like in World War One and World War Two, you were you were in for the duration, right? Uh, that's what your, when you were drafted, that's what your your terms of service set for the duration. Uh, but then with Korea and Vietnam, uh, your terms were usually one year uh, in a, the combat, uh, and then you were out. And I believe the same thing now is running in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think it might be nine months even now. <clears throat> but you're not limited to that one deployment. Uh, the, the gift of deployment is one that our government uh, loves to just keep on giving. And that's what they've been doing. A lot of these guys have multiple deployments now. Not because they're asking for them, but just because because the government cares enough to continue to deploy them, and uh, and uh, you can only you can only make so many trips uh, through a dangerous area before uh, before something may happen to you. So. Uh, please, uh, please keep our American service members in your prayers. Pray for their for their courageous and uh, and honorable service, and for their safety and for their safe return home. And certainly pray for the for the families of those service members killed or wounded in combat. Uh, because here in the United States right now, we go through our days without without ever thinking about it. Usually, uh, some of us do. Uh, I would say the majority of folks do. We don't think about it. We don't think about the fact that that on the other side of the world, we have some of our best and brightest men and women, we are, that we are forcing into uh, situations uh, that are life and death situations, or they could, or the, uh, or they could face the possibility of, uh, of severe wounds, and, uh, and that is what their life is. You know, ours is going to the store, uh, going to uh, sporting events, uh, going to Apple Feeds. <clears throat> and theirs is running missions, uh, clearing villages, uh, clearing minefields, 
uh, disarming IEDs and getting shot at on a regular basis. Remember that they're out there. Don't forget that our men and women are serving in combat zones, not just in Iraq and Afghanistan. Current administration has pushed it to the point where we have American forces participating in combat operations in over 60 locations around the world. You don't read about it every day, but they're out there. They're out there all over the world and going through uh, and, and being in harm's way in combat situations in over 60 locations around the, around the world today. All right. Uh, that was the Camp Bullis Fort Sam uh, Joint Command shoot that we did with the Air Force EOD folks. I want to thank uh, Master Sergeant Mott for setting that up, for inviting us out, and uh, and at this point he is already. Uh, I'm sure he is already in country now on his deployment back, as are several of the other folks. Uh, they played. They they gave us a very nice uh, unit coin and uh, thanked us for the uh, for the instruction. And they played a very funny joke on us. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but I'll tell you that they put a lot of thought and effort into it. And man, they had us going. Uh, we were speechless, and uh, and they thought that was very very funny, and uh, and I want to thank them for that. Uh, all right, uh, Freedom says about the twenty-two long rifle. So it comes into the store and it's gone in one to two hours still. Uh, OG in Maine says the same 10 guys wait for the Walmart to open. They run to the counter, and all the popular calibers are gone in one minute. Uh, Freedom, I'm trying to remember where you are. Can you post where you you are, what part of the country you're in? I I was thinking that it was in California, but, but I don't remember right now. Michael Edwards says he sees guys at the gun shows and flea markets trying to sell boxes of 22 long rifle for 30 bucks. 30 bucks for a box of 22 long rifle. Now that's and that that's what just a, a little over a year ago should have been uh, uh, less than a buck uh, or all a buck and a half really. Because it was up to the point, even before the ammunition craze, it was up to the point where I'm, I remember I was paying uh, $19 for a bulk pack of 550 So 30 bucks for a box. All right. Uh, all right, we've got uh, Fisher Dog from Alaska with a shoot report. And we want to welcome uh, Fisher Dog to the show. Hey, Fisher Dog, 
Thanks for calling in. Hey, Scout, how are you? I'm I'm just fine, thank you. How about yourself? Oh, very good. Uh, just uh, kind of the end of fall up here, waiting for winter to blow in any day and freeze us up. So. Well, this was your you just had your last shoot of the year, right? Well, the last formal event was this past weekend on Saturday and Sunday, and we had 20 fine Alaskan Americans out on the line with us, four new riflemen and three new orange hats. So we were pleased with how the year ended, for sure. Three new orange hats from one shoot? From one shoot, yes. Wow. That That is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Uh, uh, Red Buff, Gulo Gulo, and, and Hog Family, for those that might look for them on the forum. Well, my welcome, my congratulations to the riflemen, and my congratulations and my thank you to the guys who stepped up and uh, took the hat. That's... Uh, that is very that's, that's fantastic. Three new instructors from one shoot of 20 folks. That's great. Uh, the guys that shot riflemen, how many of them had been to an event previously? Um, out of our four new riflemen, only uh, our three of them had been to events previously. Okay. So one hadn't, but the other three had been. That's, that's, we had one individual on Saturday qualify with the 210 at his uh, first event on the only AQT of the day, and then uh, another gentleman who had been twice before and had shot well but not quite over, uh, Gulo Gulo, who then took a hat, and uh, he scored a 222, so he, he finally took care of whatever it was that he needed to take care of. And then on, on Sunday, we had uh, two shooters, one who had shot three times, that's Red Boston, who took an orange hat, uh, accomplished it, as well as... Uh, Another fellow who shot, uh, I believe, a 239 for high score of the weekend. He had multiple qualifiers, and he had been once before. And uh, just really put it all together and uh, showed the AQT the what for. Wow. Well, that is fantastic. Uh, now, you said it's your last formal event. So you guys have you have uh, plans to to do some other stuff? Uh, during the winter, what do you guys have planned? We we do. Uh, we're probably going to have uh, some instructor AQT days at the range. You know, given the cold weather, they may uh, just be uh, two or three hours at a time for for new orange hats. Um, we're busy right now this week planning an instructor boot camp for which will be held indoors uh, without uh, any live fire, of course, for the new orange hats. And uh, as uh, Alaska State Liberty Seed Coordinator, I'm working with several groups. We've got two Liberty Seeds on the books over the next couple of months, and we want to add more, at least step that up to one a month here in the the season in Alaska, which is uh, made for Liberty Seeds. (laughs) Well, have you guys had any Liberty Seeds yet? We've done one so far. And how'd it go? Uh, Very well received. And uh, out of a shoot we had down in Soldotna, Alaska, at the end of the last month, we made contact with one of the shooters who works closely with Lions Club all over the state. And they're, they're eager to have us in, as well as one of the uh, Black Powder Rifle uh, Mountain Men Clubs here in town, too, are next on the agenda. And then we're going to do one for the DAR the week of April 19th next spring. So so it's, it's going well. Wow. That is great. And how hard was it to get that slot at the DAR for the library seat? 
Um, it, it, it wasn't particularly hard. We had very good contact there with uh, one of our really strong Orange Hat instructors up here, Eagle River, who has just plugged into a lot of these groups, and he is the most awesome seven-stepper in the world. Uh, he's responsible for the shoot we did for the National Guard as well, uh, for getting that kicked off and the ball rolling on it. And he had some contact with the DAR, and they happened to be over at his house having a cup of coffee, and he invited me over, and we talked for a, a few minutes, and they liked what they heard and uh, invited us in for a full Liberty Seed uh, in conjunction with Patriots Day. So that'll be exciting well, to meet with them and develop that relationship as we go. That's what I try and tell people is that, uh, that it's not difficult to get uh, a slot to speak with the DAR. Usually it's, uh, it's not hard at all because our missions are really close. And they're usually looking for, you know, for speakers at, at their at their meetings and stuff like that. And it may you may have to wait for a few months to get on the schedule. They're usually ready to to welcome you in. I think that's exactly right, Scout. I think a lot of these civic groups, whether it's a Rotary or a Lions or a DAR, are just that way. And you just have to put your foot forward, you know, consistently and let them know uh, what our mission is. And, and the scheduling will come. At, you know, they may be scheduled 60 or 90 days or even more out. But uh, once they've had a little bit of a teaser of April 19, they're hungry for more and really would like to hear the whole whole presentation. What about uh, ammunition in there in your area in Alaska? Uh, how difficult I, is it to to find ammunition, or how easy? It's there's still some shortage and, and certainly higher prices. I was listening to you read those comments out of the chat room, and but we do have it better than some parts of the country. Some 22 has become more consistently available the past two or three weeks. A box of 100 CCI is $9. Of course, limit one per customer per day at one of the local gun stores. Walmart has had small supplies of uh, bulk ammunition that sells out same day come in uh, once or twice a week over the past three or four weeks, I've heard. I haven't gotten in on any of that. Other calibers, though, are fairly available. 223, 308 are around, maybe not every type and kind, but some of each. And prices are not have come down on those uh, since midsummer. And pistol calibers are generally available. 940 and 45 seem to be fairly common. So it's improved here, certainly, over uh, what it was uh, six months ago, and hopefully prices will continue to decline. We do see uh, here and there, whether it's a gun show or other places, the occasional gouge, the brick of uh, 500, somebody has a $99 sticker on it, but I don't think they sold much that way, so hopefully those days are past. Wow. And we had, we had a couple of no-shows this weekend, that I initially thought might be ammunition-related, and then I got, got word on those uh, four individuals that didn't show there were other reasons. And we offered uh, some courses of fire with reduced round count to our line, and generally the shooters were comfortable not having too much in, in the way of a reduced round count, but they had adequate ammunition. And we had a round count of about 441 or 445 rounds for the weekend. Nobody ran out. Nobody left over ammo. So. It's it's coming, well, for sure, I guess. They're just, you know, we're all 
standing in line, so to speak, trying to grab it, which is, I think, the issue at this point, that the consumption's still ahead of the manufacturer. Right. Well, we're just, you know, we're jizz up, and uh, I agree with uh, with Michael Edwards, and that is uh, the folks that are out there gouging people, they're, they're the 30 bucks plus for a box, <clears throat> don't buy it. I mean, unless you just unless you're just absolutely out, don't uh, don't keep supporting the folks that are doing that. And uh, I've certainly made sure to to let people know that are gouging on ammunition now that uh, that I won't be back to them. Even when the prices and stuff go down, even when they even if their prices go down, and I'm not coming back, uh, I'm going to make sure that. Uh, that I'm finding the people, and there are, there are still a few folks out there that are not gouging, that they never gouged during the, even at the height of the craziness. One of the guys, uh, one of our buddies, uh, Roughneck Firearms here in Texas, even at the height of the craziness when everybody was uh, charging up to $75 a, a piece for the P-Mags, he was still selling them uh, uh, for the, for the regular prices, uh, them and uh, Lambeau's Armory is another one here in Texas. Uh, they were everybody else is charging uh, 65, 70 bucks a piece for the 30 round uh, P Max, and he still sold them for 9.95. So, right. no, I think yeah, we, we bought like uh, 60 or 70 from him before the craziness started, but uh, we made sure that we made sure that he knows that uh, we're going to continue to support him, you know, even when all the prices are back regular, because there are a lot of folks that are not gouging, you know, and we want to make sure that uh, the business goes to to them, not to the people who, who are charging these, these exorbitant prices and, and they're not paying them, but they're passing on uh, prices uh, to you, to, to the buyers. Well, there are, there are at least five locally owned gun shops between Eagle River and Anchorage that I do business with on a regular basis, and I'll give them uh, plugs by name, but at least two of them actually showed me their invoices before and after craze, their cost. And although, you know, cost, some of the ammunition had almost doubled in retail price, they're making less per box than they were. They just had them laying out on the counter for anybody to see, and, there, you know, there's no gouge. Um, you know, if a brick... If they're selling a brick of uh, bulk 22 for 29.95 and they're making less on it than they did at 18.95, I can't scratch too much about the 9.95. And places like Great Northern and Boondocks and Ammo Can and uh, uh, several others here, I'm leaving some out, have, have done that. And the bigger stores too have also held their prices. So the the odds and ends where they've tried to gouge, you know, I just don't darken their door. And I hope most people don't because they're they're not part of the solution. Unfortunately, they're being part of the problem. Right. Well, we appreciate uh, you calling in and uh, giving us the, the update on this. And uh, anything uh, anything special you guys have coming up in the next few months? I know you said you've got uh, some Liberty Seeds coming up and some instructor AQTs that you're going to run. And you said you have some indoor facilities uh, that you can well, use? Not- not not for not for shooting. That'd be for IBC. So we can at least conduct it in, indoors with dry fire for instructor boot camp. So uh, 
Um, there is there is one indoor range in the area, and we've not developed a relationship with them yet. Um, we would be shooting rimfire at 50 feet with them, and we hope to in the future. It's just we haven't made the right contact just yet. And they operate under fairly limited hours for some reason, but uh, I don't know what that is, just uh, I think three evenings a week and one weekend day. So they tend to be quite full. And I think because of that, they're not necessarily oriented toward adding organized groups that occupy space that they're otherwise have the public paying, you know, an hourly rate to use. So that that may take, uh, um, oh, I don't know, some accommodation on their part. We'll, we'll have to work on that. But hopefully in the future, that's certainly a goal Fred gave us while he was here in August, was find places that we could shoot rimfire indoors during the winter. And, and we will. It just takes some time and some creativity and making contact with the right individual. But uh, it can right. be done. Well, that sounds great. Listen, Fisher, thanks for calling in. I appreciate you calling in and give us, giving us the updates on Alaska because I'm really excited about how the program is running up there. You guys are doing a great job. You guys are on fire. Getting three uh, orange hats from a 20-person shoot is, is really great. And, uh, and I'm really uh, excited about the way the program is running. I wish I could I'm going to find some way to take a to take a trip to come and visit you guys because uh, I'm dying to uh, to see how the program's running there in uh, in Alaska. Well, thanks for uh, you know, for calling in. Welcome. Anytime, Scout, and I want to get down to Davila, and I'll I'll do it next year or two. I will. Thanks. Okay. Well, you're always welcome here. You're always welcome here, brother. All right, well, take care of yourself. Tell everybody in Alaska I said hey, and uh, and give us a call uh, next week. Will do. Thanks. All right, take care, brother. Well, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate uh, Fisher Dog calling in and letting us know how the Alaska program is running. And listen, for the rest of you guys, everybody's welcome to do this. Uh, that's... That's the whole reason we do the show is so that we can have a uh, a way for folks to spread the information about the program, uh, let each other know how it's doing, uh, tell each other thank you and congratulations, uh, share any uh, secrets you have for promotions or uh, uh, or instruction or or anything at all. That's the whole reason that we do the show, uh, and that is to assist uh, all of the folks that are working together in the Appleseed Project and try and push the mission forward and try and do as much as we can to get folks off of their couches, get them onto the firing line so that they can take part in the absolute best Fundamentals of Rifle Marksmanship Program in the nation and hear the story about the folks the folks who founded this nation. Hear the story about April 19, 1775. Uh, who was there, what they did, why they did it, what they hoped to accomplish uh, by starting a new nation. So that's why I ask you guys to call in, all right? So the lines are always open. 
the folks to call in and give uh, after actions to tell us how the program's going in your nation, I mean in your uh, location, uh, to do promotions for upcoming events, to do after actions on events that uh, have occurred, to ask for help if you need help in an area, uh, because the all of the folks in the program are always willing to lend a hand uh, to other folks in the program. I mean, this is probably one of the most, the, the group of folks in the Appleseed Project are some of the most giving folks that I know of. Uh, the most helpful, the most kind-hearted, uh, the absolute best folks in the nation. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we had an event this last weekend. It wasn't an Appleseed event. But uh, it kind of came out, uh, the genesis is it kind of flowed out of the Appleseed because all of the folks involved uh, are Appleseed folks. All the folks involved, at least as, uh, as far as uh, the folks who ran it and staffed it and stuff like that, almost every single one are Appleseed folks. And the way that, uh, uh, the way that we got together was through Appleseed. And uh, that is the Battle Road USA's run and gun that uh, we ran this last weekend. And it it turned out very well. Uh, I think altogether we had uh, uh, right at about 90 runners. And uh, the majority of the folks were in some way involved in Appleseed either instructors or they'd been to Appleseeds and stuff like that. <clears throat> the running gun was is a four-and-a-half-mile looping course with eight shooting stations for rifle and pistol, and then there were obstacles uh, between each station that had to be negotiated. And uh, it, like I said, it, it turned out really well. It, the way the course ran was you started off at the, at the starting point, you took off within uh, about uh, 40 meters. You had a 10-foot wall that had to be climbed up and over, and this was made from uh, the uh, stock panels, you know, the metal uh, squared stock panels that are used uh, for cattle pens and stuff like that. Anyway, this one was 10-foot uh, high, had to be climbed up and over, that led to a pretty brisk uh, one-and-a-half-mile uh, dash back to the first station, which was a rifle station. And there were four targets at the rifle station, uh, ranging in distance from about uh, oh, 120 meters to about uh, uh, right under 300, I think. And uh, you had to make, I believe, three shots on each target. And then uh, you left there, went to the second station. You did that by following a dry creek bed. And there was no uh, – I didn't make an obstacle between one and two because the route itself was, was pretty much of an obstacle as it was. The creek bed uh, was pretty rough, and there were also uh, hundreds of trees from the drought that had died and fallen. There were hundreds of trees – that had fallen across the path between one and two. And uh, I think that was probably close to uh, a quarter of a mile, 
between one and two. And two was a pistol stage. And you had uh, four shooting positions, and you had to shoot at six targets. Station one had one target, uh, or position one had one target. Position two had two targets. Position three had two targets. Position four had one target. And this was pistol when you fired uh, one round into a, a head-sized target on the on these life-size dressed uh, zombie targets. And the the headshot was to a steel plate that moved and had a little bit of a ring to it. And uh, you left there, and then the trip back from there to uh, back to Station 3, I think was about uh, a mile, probably a little over a mile and a half there. And uh, that was a pretty brisk uh, dash back that way. And... Uh, the the uh, obstacles between two and three got pretty numerous. Uh, you had uh, uh, several very uh, probably about ten foot high uh, hills of gravel that had to be climbed up and down. Then you hit a a big row of tree trunks that ranged in size from about you know from the, they're laying on the ground from uh, about knee-high up to about chest-high. You had a huge uh, pecan tree trunk that uh, that was about uh, oh, five or fifty feet or so uh, high. <clears throat> Those all had to be uh, climbed over. Then you had a row of uh, tires that you had to go through, like in the old... Then that led to a uh, like an 18-foot low crawl and uh, this year the low call went as bad as last year because uh, I let some of the grass grow inside the sharp sand. Last year the low call was a killer because folks, they did the low call and they would dump some of that uh, big, coarse, sharp sand into their actions, and it, it killed a few rifles. It locked the actions up. <clears throat> Once you got to the low call, you... Uh, began your shooting portion of stage three, and uh, you drop your rifle off. You, this was a pistol stage. You had five targets to shoot from five positions, and I believe you had to put uh, three rounds on each of the targets. And then there was a gong that you fired on. That was the last uh, target, the sixth target. And that signaled your time to stop. You left that position, and then about uh, 50 meters from there, you came across a uh, fall, a small footbridge over a dry creek, and it really wasn't that high of a bridge, maybe six or seven feet off the ground. But it was 40 feet long and only uh, 16 inches wide, no handrails. And uh, that caused uh, a bit of anxiety in a lot of folks. That led uh, oh, probably another quarter of a mile to a uh, long row of tractor tires that were standing up and bolted together. You had to go through that on your hands and knees or your belly uh, from one end to the other. I think it was probably about, uh, oh, 15, uh, 16 feet long. That led uh, to another quarter mile or so to the uh, Station 4, which was called uh, Finding Sophia. That was a series of 13 
uh, life-sized targets, and uh, these were uh, targets that were, the bodies were made out of uh, metal rebar, and then they were, uh, you know, beefed up and then dressed up. And these also had steel faces, and each one of these required one shot to the head uh, from four positions. Then you left there, and you went about 100 yards to Station 5, and Station 5 was a rifle uh, station, and that wasn't that hard. You had uh, six shots had to be taken, two on uh, on the cut-down D-sized targets, and then four on, uh, like, head-sized shots from 100 yards with your rifle. Then... Uh, Maybe another uh, oh, four or five hundred uh, meters to station five. That's where you had to negotiate uh, the Ballard uh, training hallways, and then you would have to make shots on exiting from different positions. That led to uh, directly over only about uh, 50 yards over to station seven, uh, which was a really rapid fire close up. Uh, rifle, and there were 40 targets, uh, and these were all targets of uh, headshots, and you had to uh, very quickly uh, put a round in each of the 40 headshots. From there, you went uh, straight over to the speed wall, which is probably about another, oh, 150, 200 yards. Uh, at the speed wall, you'd had to negotiate a, uh, like a chain link fence you had like a uh, like a triangle or inverted V shaped uh, uh, wall and both sides of it was a chain link fence you had to climb up and over that that led to the speed wall which is a uh, 50 foot uh, wall and there were nine positions to shoot from along the wall each one was a a different awkward position that you'd have to get cramped into. And all those shots were on a 20-inch steel at about 225, 230 uh, meters. And then at the end of that was you could take a bonus shot to get yourself put into a drawing. And that was of a scale-down target so that your shot from 250 uh, was actually uh, more of a uh, 375-yard shot. and then uh, a quick 200-yard dash back to the finish line. And uh, most of the folks were completing it in around, uh, oh, an hour and a half, hour and 45, stuff like that. I think the winner ran it uh, in maybe just under an hour. And uh, and the folks really enjoyed it. And we're going to be doing it again in... Uh, April, so we'd like for you guys to uh, think about uh, attending it, and uh, I don't remember the exact date yet in April, but it will be in April. Uh, You can find out more information at the BattleRoadUSA.com about our upcoming events. Real quick, though, I want to mention that we do have... uh, uh, quite a few courses 
uh, late on for November. Uh, November 9th and 10th, we have the combat carbine course. This is a two-day course. Uh, uh, Staff Sergeant John Hawes is going to be teaching the combat carbine course, and this is a course that he has taught to probably 5,000 or more American servicemen. And this is the way that you are supposed to be running your carbine in combat situations. And how does he know this? Uh, the course was uh, originally developed by the uh, Army, and it was tweaked by Delta, and then tweaked again by uh, Staff Sergeant Hawes. And he tweaked it using the uh, using the uh, the information and gained on multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and in discussion with folks who are trying to jihad him. So this is a course uh, that is very relevant to the use of your carbine. Not only that, but because Battle Road, because we're new and we're trying to develop a client base, uh, we're offering courses right now at less than half of what you'll pay anywhere else. And the reason we're doing that, like I said, is because... Anytime you're trying to start up uh, a new company or you're trying to develop a client base, you have to offer them something that's different from what everybody else is offering. And with us, we're offering uh, very excellent instruction, but we're offering at a fraction of the cost of what other folks are offering. Uh, if you look at uh, a lot of the comparable carving courses, for one day, it's uh, 375 to 575. Uh, for two days, the price uh, goes up even further. We're going two days for 250 bucks. And like I said, that's because we want you guys to get the training. We don't want to put the, the, our prices so high that the regular folks can't afford them. Because that's who we're interested in getting instruction. We want our we want our fellow Americans to be able to run their carbines like they're supposed to be run, right? So this is November 9th and 10th. Uh, immediately following that, we have the five-day precision rifle sniper course. And once again, this is taught by uh, John Hawes, who is in Appleseed. Uh, and uh, the reason that John Hawes is qualified to teach this course is because he worked as that was his job. He worked as a sniper leading a kill team for the 10th Mountain Division uh, in Afghanistan. So the instructions you're getting is not uh, John didn't uh, just go to some schools and then uh, turn around and teach you the stuff they learned there. He has been to a lot of schools. He's been to uh, the, uh, the Army the military sniper schools, and then in addition, he's been to the other uh, contracting sniper schools, Blackwater and stuff like that, and then he's put that all to use on deployments to Afghanistan. So he's not just talking the talk, he's walking the walk, and you'll get the experience there. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, when I want to tell uh, everybody listening that... Uh, I want to tell Sister Ashton Hawes how much I appreciate 
is service to the nation. Uh, Desert and Hawes fought in Iraq and in Afghanistan, including uh, the Battle of Gordash Valley, and that is where uh, Desert Hawes and his uh, the 12 folks on his team uh, were sent on a mission to to do surveillance and hopefully take out a high-value target in the Gordish Valley. Uh, instead, they were ambushed on top of a, a mountain there, and the 12, his 12 men there fought uh, between 70 and 80 uh, Taliban members uh, for a, uh, a six- or seven-hour battle that lasted uh, most of the day and into the night. Uh, and it is the action that led to Sergeant Hawes uh, receiving the Silver Star and his friend, Sergeant First Class Jared Monty, receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously. Uh, they lost uh, three of their team members during this engagement. And uh, once again, our prayers go out to the members of the team who were killed during that mission. Uh, Specialist Bradbury, uh, uh, Sergeant Leibert, and Sergeant First Class Monty. The class is a five-day course, and... This isn't an, uh, we're not going to make you an operator. This isn't an operator course, but it is going to give you all of the information, the skills and techniques you need to make the shot at distance. I thought it was well worth it just for the one day of, uh, of MILGOT and range determination. Uh, it was fantastic course. Uh, it's going to require 500 rounds, a uh, centerfire rifle with some really good optics. For more information, you can uh, message me uh, either uh, on the forum or my, at my email, which is rwva range scout, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. I'll be glad to uh, set you up on this spot. If you're going to go, let me know pretty soon because uh, the class is starting to fill up. Uh, immediately following this class is a five-day squad school. Now, the five-day squad school is a course that has been developed for folks that uh, maybe you don't have any military background, or you had a non-combat MOS or something like that, and you would like to know how to work with other team members. Make sure that you're maximizing uh, your ability to provide security for yourself and your group, to work with other folks, to learn how to become part of a team. Uh, the focus will be on things like patrolling, uh, we'll teaching hand and arm signals, uh, camouflage techniques, land navigation, basic rifle marksmanship, uh, survival, evasion, and escape techniques, and uh, as much more as we can cram into the five days. 
And uh, this will also be a $500 course. But listen, uh, I spent six years uh, with uh, the scouts when I wasn't just a regular line dog. And uh, I'm still going to participate because I, I never miss a chance to try and keep my training fresh and hone my skills. I would really encourage you to do the same. If you've read the story Lights Out, you'll see that uh, in one portion of the book that they are trying to teach other members of the community uh, how to work as a team. And a lot of that is what we're going to be doing. We're going to skip the uh, the calisthenics and stuff. You won't be doing that. It's no boot camp, no yelling in your face, nothing like that. Well, we are going to teach you how to work with other folks uh, to become a member of the team. Uh, and then February uh, the 12th through the 16th of 2014, we'll have a five-day course on combat tracking. And this is going to be led by Sergeant First Class John Hurt, who is a former member of the Special Forces A team, and he was the uh, head instructor at the Fort Huachuca Army Combat Track and Tracking Skills are going to be one of the most valuable skills you can have in in many situations. And if you've ever wanted to learn how to be able to track uh, either another person or an animal, uh, this is a perfect course for it. Uh, especially, uh, especially if you wanted to be able to see uh, – <clears throat> Where park folks were doing, they were passing by. Say you had, uh, you know, a bug out location or something like that. You wanted to see who, where folks were were passing by near to you. If folks were stopping and watching you, uh, if they were, how many of them were in the group that was watching you? Where they went after they were watching you? Uh, things like this, you're going to be able to. These, kind of, these types of skills are going to be taught to you. Skills are going to be invaluable in a lot of situations, all right? Next course is going to be about 600 bucks. And once again, you can uh, email me or message me uh, for a slot, and that will be in February, all right? Uh, all right, and the last thing I want to get to tonight is land navigation. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but what I want to tell you is that uh, land navigation, and we're probably going to end up, uh, this is one of the things that we'll, during the uh, squad school, is basic land navigation. Uh, land navigation is a very important skill to have. If you don't have uh, a uh, uh, a phone with a GPS on it, or you don't have a car that you can drive down the highway and follow the highway signs and uh, and listen to the GPS system tell you where to go, uh, which everybody does nowadays. Even the military has gone all electronic. Land navigation is something you won't. You, you really can't do without. That's having the ability to get from point A to point B 
using a compass and a map. And uh, this is a skill that uh, I've always thought was an, uh, an amazing skill to have. And I've, I've practiced it for the last, what now, 30, 40 years? And even before that, because I practiced it ever since I uh, started with the Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. So I guess probably close to 40 years now that I've been uh, finding my way from point A to point B with a compass and a map. And uh, you don't have to have uh, expensive gear to do this. You don't have to have a perfect map. You need to know how to figure out uh, what is north, what is south. Uh, and you can do this even without a, uh, a compass. You can do it uh, by uh, watching the movement of the sun. I think uh, OG was, old guide was uh, talking about this earlier. You know, you can take a, uh, a stick, place it in the ground, make a mark of where the shadow is, and uh, wait a, uh, uh, another amount of time to where the sun has moved and the end of the, the shadow has uh, 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 moved, and then draw a line uh, across the two, and you're able to determine uh, uh, north by using the stick and shadow method. You can... Uh, you can use other methods here. I'm not going to go into a lot of them right now because we're starting to get to the very end of the show. You can use a lot of other methods to, to make a uh, rudimentary compass, but you can also make sure that you have a good working compass and a decent map, at least of the area that you're living in or of, an, of the area where you're going to go and the route you're going to take to get there and understand how to use a map and a compass to determine where you are uh, on the face of the earth. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. You can do that uh, by resection and uh, resection of a road or a, uh, or a creek or a river or something. That's where you look at something, something that's large enough that it's going to show up on the map, like a, uh, uh, a mountaintop or something like that, just reading to that. Then you orient your map, you put the, uh, you draw from the, the mountaintop that you've uh, shot an azimuth on, you draw that azimuth from that mountaintop to whatever uh, linear feature that you're on, whether it's a road or something like that, and where the line crosses the road is where you are. Now, that's, it's fairly accurate if you do it with just one. But if you do it with two known features, known land features, you can get yourself uh, a pretty decent, uh, a pretty close location to where you are by using a linear feature on the map and two other known locations. You shoot an azimuth to, the, to each of them, you draw the back azimuth on your map, and where the two lines intersect the linear feature, that's where you are. All right? It's very important that you know how to use a map and a compass because uh, in the event that there is some type of cessation of services, uh, some type of 
uh, grid down situation, uh, you're not going to be able to to count on electronic devices. Now I see that OG is just now he was just now talking about how he he bought uh, bought the latest and greatest Delorme GPS, which is good right now. It's, which is great right now. The only problem is that it may not work if something happens uh, that would affect transmission from the satellites or uh, or would affect uh, or something that affects our electronic grid. All right. So you need to know how to use uh, a map and compass uh, by themselves. Now there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of folks, I don't know how much they're doing it now, but I know that uh, a while back a lot of folks <clears throat> were participating in uh, in things like uh, orienteering. I know I used to do that a lot uh, when I was younger. And that's where they have a course laid out, and you start at the beginning of the course, you know, at a certain point, and they'll tell you uh, from this point you're going to go 300 meters on uh, – on direction, uh, you know, one, four, five, and you'll hit another point. At that point, uh, it will give you another direction on and another distance on an azimuth to get to another location. You'll keep going until you've navigated the whole course, and uh, and that's a very good way to to gauge your skills. And then they had. Uh, something else that they've been doing. I believe it's called geocaching. And that's where folks have been publishing uh, coordinates for for a cache of something uh, that they've stashed away at a location. And by using your map and compass, you can find the uh, your way to the location and find what they have left there. You know, mostly it's just uh, like little tokens and stuff, and then they allow you to place stuff, place things in there too, or notes or stuff like that. But it's a way people were using their uh, navigational, land navigational skills, in order to uh, to find their way to these uh, caches. And uh, while there's uh, well, there's not a lot we can do to to show you how to do land navigation. Uh, we will have that coming up in a two-part series uh, in about four weeks, uh, maybe sooner. But you know, I think it's in about four weeks that uh, we'll have that on. Uh, we'll we'll have Stuart Rhodes on probably in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure he'll tell us about. Uh, how the Alamo event went. And then I spoke with uh, uh, Gypsy in Fredericksburg, and she's going to, uh, she's talking to Sheriff Mack about coming on the show too, because I'd like for Sheriff Mack to be able to talk to you guys again about how the uh, Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association is working very hard to ensure that your local county sheriffs understand that they are the highest law enforcement officials in your county and how he is showing them how they can look out for you and how they can protect your constitutional rights. 
All right. I want to thank everybody uh, who helped run the Camp Bullis event. Uh, and I want to thank the folks from the Battle Road uh, Running Gun. And uh, I certainly want to thank uh, Sam D., who is here every time I'm here. And and I couldn't do a show without him. <clears throat> so thank you. And I want to certainly thank all the folks uh, that are listening. Uh, and we'll see you this uh, next. Here I'm losing the, the switchboard here. We'll see you the next uh, Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. All right? Okay, everybody, thank you all. Uh, God bless and keep you. Right, they'll knock you to your knees.